welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have gathered us into these spaces here this morning. And we pray, O Lord, that you would give us your spirit of illumination to this, the very word of God. Father, thank you that in your great love, you sent Jesus to this earth to live with us, die for us, rise again, to bring good news to our world. Father, would you cause us to be those that celebrate good news even now? Would we know the welcome of Jesus, we pray. In his name and for his sake, amen. You may be seated. So about a month ago, there were a group of people, leaders from the Liberty Network, were in a network of local churches, and the Liberty Network lead team took a retreat, talked about a lot of different things, and one of the things that we discussed and talked about was this nationwide, or here in the West, phenomenon of adults that are deconstructing and deconverting from their faith. And it is a pattern that's going on. We're not freaking out about it because it's, it's just happening. Where, say, somebody, an adult in his or her 20s is really on fire for Jesus, and then maybe less on fire in one's 30s for Jesus, and then once you hit the 40s, maybe you're not following Christ at all anymore. That is a national trend that's going on. So we talked about why, why are people doing that? What are some of the pulls? What are some of the tension points? And the story kind of goes like this, not to over-stereotype, but here are a couple common ingredients. So somebody will begin to say, Jesus is not as real or alive to me as he used to be. And why am I making my life harder by doing all of these Christian things? I'm a modern person. I'm really busy. And I don't get why all of this calendar in my life is being taken up by church stuff. And if I'm honest, maybe 15 to 20% of what the church does is really important to me, but then I'm stuck with this 80 to 85% that just really doesn't speak to me. What if I just took a step away and stopped doing it? Or another reason could be like this. Okay, I have my church friends, and then I have my friends that aren't at church. And for my friends that aren't at church, by and large, they're pretty uniform politically, so they'll either identify with the secular right or the secular left. And I feel these pulls because the way that my church reads the Bible doesn't fully align with this friend group over here or this friend group over here. I feel that tension, which could be resolved if I just take a step back and then another step back and then another step back until finally you walk away from the faith. And as we were talking about this on the Liberty Lead team, I did have the thought to myself, could that be me? 
what if that would ever happen to me? And as I processed it, I think the answer is, I don't think I'll go in that direction, not because I'm better than anybody else, but just by the grace of God. And this is the reason, and I'll tell you another story. When I was a teenager, little Jimmy Anger, even though nobody called me Jimmy then or now, please don't call me Jimmy, I don't know why I said that. So when I was a teenager, with my parents, I would fight the curfew wars. If either you're a youth in the midst of curfew wars, or if you've you know, been on the other side of that one way or another. So when I would go out on a Friday or Saturday night, I grew up in suburban New Orleans, there would be a certain time at which I would prefer to get home on that Friday and Saturday night, which was different from the time that my parents preferred me to get home on a Friday or Saturday night. So we would have arguments about it. And for my own part, I thought that my arguments for my parents were, were pretty, pretty slick and smart. So I'd say things like, this is stupid. Why do I have to do this? Why do we even live in New Orleans if I can't stay out all night? And this is my favorite argument. I would tell my parents, if you really loved me, you wouldn't care at all about what I did. That one didn't go over too well either. And so my dad eventually got tired of this back and forth conversation, curfew wars, that eventually said, Jim, we're not gonna talk about this anymore. Here's the deal. When you go out after dinner, to meet your friends in uptown New Orleans on a Friday and Saturday night, you need to understand that you're driving my car, you're burning my gas, on your body are clothes that your mother bought you, and in your belly is food that your mother cooked for you. As long as you remain in this house, you will get home when we ask you to get home. And I said, okay. And that was the end of, of, of that conversation. But I actually had to give it to the old man. I think he was right. And I understood that for me, like it or not, unavoidably so, I was living in my father's house. And I knew and recognized that as long as I remained in my father's house, as long as I was there receiving his resources, I was going to need to obey his and their rules. And similarly, I can picture a hypothetical conversation between me and God. Hey God, this is Jim. Why am I making my life harder with all of this church stuff? Why don't I just stop? Why do I have to obey? Why do I have to acknowledge you before other people and create tension points in my friend groups? What if I just stop doing all of this stuff? But I can picture God coming back to me and saying something like this. Hey, Jim, you know that brain you have in which you're thinking all those fancy thoughts about why you shouldn't follow me anymore? I created brains. They're from me. And you know those language structures with your fancy words that you're crafting so that you can tell yourself it's okay for me to step away? I created language. Do you know that community that you value so much? Community comes from me. And do you know that technology that you listen to where you get all of your awesome podcasts, like the post-Sunday blues or preaching post-mortem? Technology's from me, too. I created all of that stuff. And so I need to recognize, for my own part, that like it or not, unavoidably, I am living in, and this is my father's world. And as long as I'm here, 
and receiving God's resources, I likewise must abide by God's rules. Because he's the creator. He created all things. And as I think about it a little bit more, and if you're skeptical of spiritual realities, if you're not sure where you stand with some of these things, thank you for being here, whether in the room or online. This might sound weird from a perspective of coming outside of the church, outside of Christianity, outside of the Bible, but bear with me just for a moment for me to suggest that from the inside, as we consider the Christian story from the Christian story itself, what you or what I might choose to say or think or believe about God is actually just kind of secondary. Because either way, God is. Either way, God created all things. Either way, God rules. And that's really the opposite of how we as Americans today think about faith. Zadie Smith, one of my favorite contemporary authors, noticed this about what her kids were being taught and told and shown in terms of what belief really is. And she put it this way. American faith long ago detached itself from any particular religion, achieving autonomy in and of itself. Believing in belief is what makes Luke a Jedi and Cinderella a princess and Pinocchio a real boy. This is the lesson. If you believe it, it will be real. But instead, as we access the scriptures, because God has created all things, we are on the hook before this God. And we are going to spend seasons of life in our church here at Liberty Collingswood becoming reacquainted with this God. This God is good all the time, like we just sang, all the way through. But also this God and all of his power communicates to the world and communicates to the human beings. Don't get too comfortable at the same time. And for me, sometimes I have moments, I'm not sure I like this God too much. But when I come back to the scriptures, I see... There is no other God that created me and no other God that loves me except this God. So let's re-engage. And we're going to do that through the book of Genesis. So two parts here for the rest of the sermon. We're going to be looking at the first two verses of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, the very beginning of all things. And we're going to look at God's power and then also God's presence. And here at the launch of a ministry year, we are going to be doing a long sermon series. Here we go. The longest sermon series maybe in the history of the hundreds of years that Liberty Collingswood has been around. This is going to be a long one. It's going to take us at least through winter of this school year, maybe even longer. And we're going to go slow. As I map out the sermon series right now, for the fall, we're only going to be in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's going to be a slow cook, but that's okay. So put on your apron. Let's pour a nice glass of Bordeaux. Let's put on some Count Basie with Lester Young and spend time in the kitchen as this chicken roasts. It's going to be great. And I also want to say that from my perspective, I'm continuing my hot streak of awesome sermon series titles. Here we go. Jen Paris. I'm just kidding. But here it is. Genesis. Then and now. It's going to be a bestseller. I can feel it in my bones. It's going to be great. Genesis then. We are going to spend some time 
savoring and becoming refreshed and re-engaged by the God of the Scriptures, and then also now, as there are so many topics and themes that spin out into our world from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We're going to take our time to talk through some topical things. So from Genesis 1 and 2, we're going to talk about days of creation. We're going to talk about this fall faith and science. We're going to wrestle through the secular slogan, science is real. What does that mean? We're going to talk about care for the environment and environmentalism. We're going to talk about racial reconciliation, which we talked about also in Lent. We're also going to talk about things like gender fluidity and identification and some abortion and some marriage and sexuality and some work and rest and Sabbath. It's going to be really interesting, and we're not going to try to pick fights with any of these things. We're going to engage them carefully and, I hope, compassionately. But we need to talk about some of these things because everybody's talking about some of these things anyway, and I have a pastoral burden that I want us all to be discipled by Scripture and not by Twitter. So we're going to engage some of these things, beginning here, Genesis 1 and 2, at the beginning. And also part of the beginning for us here at Liberty Collingswood, Eric said, hey, we're going to be doing some different things in our home meetings this year. That's because starting this Sunday for two years, and we've been talking a lot on staff and consistory with our elders and deacons, we're going to be beginning, beginning a project called the Represence Initiative, which will be nothing less than a relaunch of our church into a post-Christian and post-COVID-ish world where we're going to try to dig in all over again and identify how do we, for ourselves as followers of Jesus, pursue a third-way walk and worldview where we're captive and aligned neither to the secular right nor the secular left so that following Jesus can fully be its own thing. So it made sense to start from the book of Genesis as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that heavens and earth, that's a merism. Not as in America, but a merism as a literary figure of speech where you have two contrasting things, heaven and earth, to signify the whole. God created heaven and earth. That's a way of saying God created all things. He is a God of great power. And it's all the more striking as we begin the study in Genesis when we understand as well some of the original conversation partners that were in dialogue with the writer of the beginning of this book. So does Genesis chapter 1 answer all of the questions that modern science might ask of it? And the answer is no, of course not, because it wasn't around back then, modern science. But what was around were these other creation stories in the ancient Near East from Egypt from Mesopotamia, Samaria, Babylon, Assyria. And as we look at those creation stories and do a cross-comparison, things are pretty different. For example, in those creation stories, God is not above the fray, but in the fray. The Egyptian creation story, for example, God is in some kind of egg that bubbles up through the primordial soupy mess of pre-creation, and so God is actually part of the world and not above it. And there is creation by war, the Enuma Elish, a Babylonian creation story. You have one god, Marduk, who's in a battle with all of these other gods, including Tiamat, the sea monster of the deep. And Marduk kills Tiamat, and from the carcass of this great monster, the world is created. And then also, and we're going to talk about this later, about people being created in the image of God, 
Many of these other creation stories have a creation of human beings, but there's a hierarchy, there's a, there's a racism, there's a caste system there where only the richest and the best from your own tribe, they're the real boys and real girls, and the rest are just Pinocchios, less than fully human. Against that backdrop, Genesis, totally different. This God is more powerful. He created all things, and the heavens and the earth were created by this God. And this God is supreme in his power. He's not in the fray. He's above all things. From nothing, God created all of this stuff and the whole world. And in the Genesis account, it's not creation by war. It's creation by word. There's no fighting. There's no back and forth. God isn't you know, on the run or being pursued by forces of chaos or darkness or the deep. God just does. God creates. And here's a Bible factoid for you. In the beginning, I don't know a lot of biblical Hebrew, but here goes. The beginning of the Bible, Bereshit bara Elohim. I apologize for the bad pronunciation of that Hebrew, but bara, that's the word for create, Elohim, God created. That word, like I said, means create. It's used a lot in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, but there's only ever one subject. There's only ever one being that does the bara, that does the creating, and that's God. And God is the only one that does the big C creation of all things. There's lots of other Hebrew words for making and fashioning and fabricating and producing, and human beings and animals, they do all of that stuff. But the big C creation that only comes from our creator, he is supreme. One Bible commentator put it this way. The idea of creation by the word preserves, first of all, the most radical essential distinction between creator and creature. Creation cannot be even remotely considered an emanation from God. It is not somehow an overflow or reflection of his being, i.e. of his divine nature, but is rather a product of his personal will. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all things, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. God's just there, and the deep is not chaotically fighting against God. God is peacefully fashioning and forming all things. So in essence, this creation story here in its original context says, our God is better than your God. Our God is more powerful. Our God is more complete. Our God is more real. This God is the one true God. Then and also now. Like I mentioned, Genesis doesn't answer all of the questions of modern science. But is it really that crazy at a larger level to say that God has actually created all things? It's actually not that crazy if you think about it. For example, give a toy to a kid. Not in a creepy way, just in a normal way. This is a hypothetical. It is, it is a little creepy. So, but give, hypothetically speaking, so give a toy to a kid and say, hey kid, this toy came from nowhere. It's always existed. It was created by nothing. It's just always been here. This Mr. Softy ice cream cone is uncreated. It came from nowhere. Mr. Softy did not make it. Or Mrs. Softy. It's just always existed. The kid would say, no, it had to come from somewhere. And isn't it true that the world, the universe, all things had to come from somewhere? And maybe this is me just in my grumpy old man phase of life right now. But as I think about religious skepticism versus religious commitment, 
I don't think that religious skepticism is smarter. I'm not saying it's dumber. There's a lot of smart people on all sides of a ton of different debates. Religious skepticism isn't smarter, but it's cooler. That's what it is. A Bible scholar and theologian and critic of culture from the church named Dallas Willard, he died a couple of years ago, but he said this, and I think he's right. We live in a culture that has, for centuries now, cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. But here's the rub, at least as I see it when it comes to the Bible and specifically to Genesis. Genesis is true. And God created all things. We are not free. If Genesis is true, we are not free. If God is the creator, we are creatures and are therefore contingent, dependent upon God, and accountable to him. Matt Harmon last week, the senior pastor at Liberty Mainline, said that it sounds kind of crazy from a perspective outside of the church, but because God has created us, we have this intuition as human beings deep down that we must obey God today and reckon with him tomorrow. We say in the Apostles' Creed, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We're accountable to this God because he barahs, because he is the creator. And if in this modern age, it's, it's we are the ones that are doing all of the creating, all of the barahing, at least in my opinion, it's no coincidence that we are so fatigued and so fractured and so fragile as people because the responsibility is all on us that we need to construct our identities completely from the ground up only on the basis of what we feel. So don't look at where you come from, don't look at your family, don't look at your community, especially if you don't like your community, don't look at your biology, don't look at anything and just identify how you feel right now. To me, that's too large a weight for us as human beings to bear. And it's fatiguing. And you might feel identity curation fatigue yourself for things as simple as, hey, everybody's watching. What am I doing on social media? What am I not doing on social media? What am I commenting on? What am I not commenting on? How does my body look? Does it look the right way? How does my family look? Or how, how does my family situation, you know, single or whatever, does that look the right way? And am I doing the right things with my leisure time? Am I doing the right things with my job? Am I virtue signaling the right things with the companies and the things that I buy? Am I doing the right things on vacation? Am I eating at the right restaurants? Am I having the right kind of fun? And so on. That's exhausting. And it's no coincidence, again, that if we have to construct our identity every day from the inside over and over again, that we feel so fragile. And every little disagreement or non-affirmation is an attack on your person and on your soul. But instead, there's a beauty and a rest to let God be the creator. Let God be the Barak. You might think to yourself, that God sounds powerful, but I'm not really sure that I like that God. I would say, don't forget the cross of Jesus Christ. So God, in a general way, reveals himself in nature and in the heavens and the earth. God, in a special way, reveals himself in the scriptures and in Jesus, the very word of God. And we see through the cross where Jesus died and rose again, that Jesus, all-powerful, uses all of his power for others. 
And from my view, with every other system in the world, power goes up. It goes up the steps, it's run up the flagpole, so that more power is concentrated with fewer people that oppress everybody under them. Jesus of Nazareth, the all-powerful one, says, I am among you, not as somebody who's going to squash you, but as one who serves. And the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a different kind of power. We are, we are not free, but we are helped by the one that is. So this God is powerful, and this God is present with us. God is supreme, but not separate from creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and darkness, was over the face of the deep, all of that mess of the early creation, that chaos, God peacefully superintends over all of it. But then the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And there's a nice little flow here where the deep, even though it's a peaceful creation story here, the deep in the ancient Near East, it has connotations of that danger and that threat and that chaos. But as God and his spirit moves closer to that potential chaos, the deep becomes calm. And now it's just waters. Because the spirit of God is near. Who is this? That the wind and the waves obey this God. And that image, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And that same word is used for a maternal eagle hovering over her nest and hovering over her, her young, nurturing, being near to all of us. God is supreme but not separate. And we can ask the question, what do we do with the God of the Bible? Have you read the Bible recently? It's a really crazy book. It's a really crazy book. And here's where I am at thing, with things. What do we do with the God of the Bible? For the past year and a half during pandemic, I've read more Bible, less things to do, a lot of Bible to read. What do we do with the God of the Bible? It's a both and for me. On one hand, if you're skeptical of Christianity or not sure where you stand with spiritual things right now, even from being within the Christian side of the fence, God of the Bible kind of freaks me out. Hear this. It's even worse than you think when you actually go back and look at the Bible and read the Old Testament. And the God of the scriptures, whether Old Testament or New Testament, is more fierce and more ferocious and more foreign and more horrible than you even might think at first glance. And this God is not to be domesticated by the late modern West or the global East or the global North or the global South. Never has been, never will. But, and here's the and, when you go back and read the scriptures again, I have been struck anew equally by how fierce and ferocious this God is in being present and near to the lowly. The God of the universe that created all things with the least of these, condescending. And in my Bible journal, I have a specific Bible that I use for Bible reading, and it has margins. It's a really nice system. And I got in the habit, whenever I see God being near to the lowly, the widow, the orphan, the outcast, the powerless, the outsider, I just write condescension as a note in the margin. And I was struck by how often I wrote condescension. God is with and near to the low. A couple Psalms. 
Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Or another place, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And that same spirit of the Lord for the psalmist, that same spirit of God hovering over the waters so long ago that we read about in Genesis, really and truly is the spirit of God that is hovering over you in this room and as you watch online. The spirit of God is near. And that nearness of God, that presence of God, is what we're going to try and capture in this represence initiative. And there's going to be printed material. There's going to be a lot of stuff coming down the pike for you over the next few weeks. What we're going to do is say, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's be all in. Let's seek and cultivate God's presence in our lives with practices of presence, like Eric was talking about in home meetings. Let's establish some pathways of presence so we can be present with God, present with one another, present in mission in a variety of ways. Let's do this as our lives are so disembodied, as, as we're mediated by social technology and social media in different ways, as we're fractured. Let's seek the presence of God ourselves and as a community of faith that we would know his nearness because this God, this God wants to be present with you and with us. You see, for modern people, we can think, I want to be alone. I want to get rid of this concept of God. It's, it's outdated. It's toxic. It just doesn't work in a modern context anymore. Let me just please move on. But that's as if we're telling God, I want to be alone. And God actually grants us that request when we say that. You want to be alone? Fine, you are. But that's not good news. The good news instead is that through the cross, where Jesus died and rose again, paid the penalty for our sin, conquered sin and death and the devil to bind us with grace like Matt was talking about last week, grace from the cross now, and glory to come later when the new heavens and new earth are present with us. This Jesus says we are not alone, but we are graciously pursued. We were orphans lost at the fall, but the overwhelming love of God pursues us in Jesus by his gracious presence and pursuit. We're not alone, but we're healed. If we're skeptical of spiritual realities and skeptical of this Jesus, how else? How else can you be both seen and loved? Seen not only in the good parts, seen not only as you present yourself in real life and online, but seen in even all of the bad parts, in the rough stuff, in the stuff that you're ashamed of, in the stuff that you, it wasn't anybody else's fault but yours, and so on. How can you be seen and loved completely except through this Jesus? So, this is a brave new world and a new beginning. Own your story. It's not for us to originate our stories, that's Barah, but own your story. And in this new beginning for you, what's next? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem. 
on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.